Welcome to Electricians and Mad Men. I'm Ian Gorman. Today we feature part two of my conversation with Brian Heaney. Brian is a recording and live sound engineer, as well as a musician, educator, archivist, and radio producer. A prolific contributor to the Kalamazoo music scene for over 20 years, Brian is a sound person of diverse tastes and skills, from wildly inventive indie albums to pristine classical recordings. We talked in December 2017 at his own Studio 37, set up in the second story of a barn on the outskirts of town. You, you do live sound all over town, too. We haven't really gotten much into talking about live sound, but you're set up very slickly to be able to record and do live sound at the same time, yes. which is rare. A lot of people, even if they have the ability to do both, a lot of engineers don't take on both jobs simultaneously. <laughs> you run to a situation where you hire sound engineer A to run live sound and sound engineer B to record. Yep. But this is a service you provide for a lot of shows that you run sound for where you can multi-track it That's really right. easily on the spot. How have you tailored your setup to be able to do that in a way that doesn't drive you mad with it, you know, connectivity issues and all that? Right, right. Well, um, the uh, the I really enjoy this uh, Joko unit, the Joko Blue Box, and um, that builds off of uh, the Joko Black Box series that's been out for a long time. And when I was at Western Sound Studios, we used the Black Box for a lot of stuff. Um, and, uh, and we did all of our multi-track backups to the, to the black box mm -hmm. and, and ran, um, and ran an O3 system. Um, the black box is just a straight up audio file recorder. Mm -hmm. It just is built like a tank will run for a super long period of time. No features, just inputs and outputs basically. Right? Pretty, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a real bare bones unit that, um, uh, it, it's, uh, 24 inputs, uh, on a one space and it records to a USB 2.0 drive. It's mm. as simple as it gets, but it's rock solid. It's never crashed on me. And, um, and it will actually record right up until you pull uh, the plug on it. So if, <laughs> if you lose power, you get the sound right up until you lose power. But I have a battery backup for my uh, on-location recording rigs, so we'll at least get another 10, 15 minutes out of it in most cases. Um, and uh, so Do you feed that with a split, or do you feed that off direct outs from the board, or, or how do you do that? Right, so um, there's a couple of different ways to do it, but for the live sound thing, the simplest thing, um, and it, they've made it very simple, is um, it's all DB25 connectors on the, on the blue box. I own a blue box. Um, that's what I'm using now for my on-location mainframe. Um, and um, so the, I tend not to use direct outs for anything except recording in the live world. Um, and all of my boards have direct outputs. Um, I, I, I won't buy the board unless it has a direct output that's mm -hmm. pre-fader, pre-EQ. Um, it just has to be right after the gain um, for this job. And, and if you're an engineer, you can understand that. Right. Um, so, the, um, so for the basic, uh, but basic live multi-tracking, if, uh, if people you know, aren't too concerned with the sound quality or something along those lines, they just want a good... Uh, a good live demo or something like that. Um, one space, blue box, three uh, dB25 to TRS cables, and the gain staging is a perfect match. Um, it's all, you know, whatever. I, I, I'm not too sure what the headroom is on that off the top of my head, but, um, but as far as like a reference for where I want my levels on the board, it's perfect for the blue box. And so I basically can just hit record 
And if it sounds good uh, when I PFL a channel, then that's what I'm getting to the blue box. Nice. Um, so, so you're not bringing a Pro Tools rig or anything. You're just no. You're rolling to this box, and then later on you'll dump that into Pro Tools or whatever, and then take it from there. Well, and they they really improved proved uh, on this um, idea that they had with the one space because with the blue box, it's now instead of just recording the USB two, it also sends out a USB stream to um, a DAW. So I can record um, through any like ASIO driver um, to uh, I use Harrison Mixbus right now for my uh, on for my on location um, DAW, um, but um, but it's designed so that uh, if the DAW crashes, it's still running to the flash drive backup. So gotcha. I do want to have um, a secondary copy uh, for on location uh, gigs. And uh, depending on you know how crucial that is for the event, then I'll rent another one, um, mm. and and use some splits or uh, something along those lines. So I don't want to get too into all of the the uh, potential streams because uh, my whole like my whole uh, thing here is that we're I'm looking to interconnect anything to anything. So that's always my thought process is how can how can we make this happen, whether it's from high quality to high quality or low to high or high to low or however it is. Um, that sort of thing is always kind of going on in, in my head and running splits or mic splitters or, um, you know, Crane Song's got an ADAT output, but it also has uh, line outputs for the multi-tracks. So ah. I can, you know, run one of them to the blue box and run with the, you know, sometimes I'll rent the the black box from the sound studio and mm -hmm. take that on as a secondary. Yeah, so um, you got backups going. I always run, yep. uh, I always run backups uh, one way or another. Um, and you have to, it's just part of the territory. But, yep. um, but you know what I'm so happy about right now uh, with uh, with this, with the PA rig and uh, some of the investments I've made this year in my on-location recording rig is that um, the um, I, I kind of have a two-sizes-fits-all approach where <clears throat> I have uh, one box that's all 14 channels of pre's. And if, um, you know, most of your recordings that you want to do live, you're going to get a lot with 14 channels. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that'll cover a lot of ground. And... Uh, so what I've been doing um, on a couple of occasions now is instead of running everything to my board and running that out to the blue box, I run everything to these pre's. And then I output to the board uh, into line, and then that will go to the blue box. Uh -huh. So the whole PA listening experience and like the noise floor of the system and all of the quality that comes from having, you know, millennia pre's and John Hardy pre's as your front end instead of... Uh, you know, Allen and Heath GL2400. Now, mm -hmm. I don't have any complaints about it, but uh, kind of well, obvious, yeah. you know, the quality sure. difference that you're going to get. So it's great for the listener in, who's just enjoying the music because everything is that much better, but then that's also going to your recording. Um, nice. And so, the, the only so difference you, is your little bit of line treatment through the... Yeah, so you're talking about going to some nice top-level outboard mic pre's and then feeding your PA from that so that the live listener is getting the experience of hearing everything through those mic pre's and then also your recording that is getting split off at that point that's is right. also going through. That's that's wonderful. It's yep. a nice setup. And uh, just... Um, you know, we uh, I didn't get to, I did not wind up bringing the the nice pre's on this on this particular date. I didn't have that, but um, at the time. But um, I'm just so excited because uh, 
this record that just came out uh, from the Marsalis family. Um, Delfio Marsalis and Ellis Marsalis came around on a Fontana gig back in 2015. And, um, and I did this uh, multi-track because I just thought, well, you know, we're going to do this for MUK, WMUK here for their broadcast. And I just kind of thought, let's, let's make this as good as it can be so that we definitely have something to broadcast. This is a really special moment, you know, mm -hmm. for the Marsalis family to be doing a concert here. It was really cool. Um, so, uh, so we multi-tracked that off the board and, uh, it turned out they liked the work so much. They actually released it as a, as a CD. Now I didn't get to mix it or anything, mm -hmm. but, um, but, uh, I think I'm just so proud of that, that, um, you know, the, I don't, I mean, well, that, that's why you bring your A game no matter right. what, even if you don't think that it's going to be used for anything, you that's never right. know. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier uh, your studies in communication, and that is something that I wanted to touch on too. Um, from what I understand, you're, you're in the home stretch of working towards your master's in communication at WMU right, right now. And you've done extensive study in communication in artistic creation situations, multiple people, that sort of thing. Obviously, things that apply very strongly to recording sessions and yeah. to music and creating art with other people. What about the subject of communication has drawn you so much from the studio world? Yeah, well, it really, it's a, it was a naturally occurring thing because at least the, this concept really struck me when I was uh, booking um, the, uh, the, bar, the venue called Craft Brow, Craft Brow Brewery here mm -hmm. um, in Kalamazoo. And, um, and, you know, I was organizing three or four shows a week with three bands on each show. And that, I did that for three or four years. And um, so if, uh, if you've been in that position or if you've ever tried to book your band, then you know something about how communication plays into, you know, this process, especially from, you know, just a pure logistics standpoint. There's so much mm -hmm. to be, you know, <clears throat> communicated via email. And it can be very challenging, and uh, and there's a lot of misunderstandings, you know, intentional or otherwise. That um, you know, you you want to if you're in the position of being the booking person and being responsible for how the gig plays out that night, you're going to start taking some really good notes if you you know care about your work. And so I just it started to you know occur to me just how much you know this is a communication phenomenon as much as it's any other sort of like artistic production phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, I wound up taking a, 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 a interpersonal communication um, as an undergraduate when I finally went back to finish my undergraduate degree. And, uh, and having already had some of that perspective, it was really, it really just opened up a whole other world of, well, how else could we look at this besides, you know, I'm in this position of, power, you know, relative to this, you know, venue and this show. I'm, I'm kind of the, the booking person was the gatekeeper to you having your show. Um, so you, there's a certain amount of power in that, but yet there's a different type of power that the band has because they're the ones that the people are coming to see. And, um, and they're the ones that talk um, about how good a venue is and how they were treated and that whole sort of like word of mouth thing that happens amongst uh, musicians and, and bandmates when, you know, if you've got a problematic venue, I'm sure every one of you listeners has something that comes to mind with something you heard about a venue or 
or any of those sorts of things. And, and that is its own communication phenomenon as well. So, um, so I just kind of thought, um, if, uh, if I was going to do higher education in anything, um, it, because I've enjoyed my, I've had some opportunities to teach and, and it's been really fun. I've had a, I've had a great time with it. And, um, and I like helping people understand what is going on in my world and, and, um, uh, helping people get better productions when they don't necessarily know what they're doing. So, um, so, uh, all of these things can be improved through an understanding of basic communication phenomenon and every theory that I've been presented with in, uh, in my studies has had some corollary in the studio or live sound world. Um, you know, it might be fragments or it might be a, just a moment in a part of the production arc. Um, but, but you can see what's going on there instead of uh, kind of, you, know, you get frustrated if somebody, if, you, if, you're not, if things aren't working out with somebody, you might just get frustrated if you don't have um, an understanding of some of these um, modes of operation that just are basic to being human. Mm -hmm. um, it's not really even um, artistic based. It's just that everybody has, everybody has this, um, you know, face theory is one of them. Everybody has a face that they're trying to show to the world. And that is different maybe than how you might uh, have a different face at home. Mm -hmm. You know, you might, you would show, you would show yourself as a particular person to your parents, perhaps, that would be different than you might show to your bandmates. Well, I think that that's really interesting, especially thinking about a lot of musicians as being performers right. and having that kind of face, not just on stage, but the face that they want their art to have. Yes. And then trying to balance that with the reality of who they are as a person, especially behind the scenes during the creative process. Exactly. And that's probably a conflict that you, you know, I don't know if conflict's the right word, but a, a situation that you run into quite a bit in the studio is balancing those two sides of all of these artists. Yeah. I mean, imagine yourself as the engineer, if, if you know, if we're mostly speaking to engineers here and, and you know, you know, your friend who is in this group and they're the singer, Per, perhaps you know or i'm just these are just all hypotheticals there are so many variants on this um it's really quite endless but they um but you know you want to so many engineers want to get somebody into the right vibe but what is that vibe going to be when you know subject matter of the song maybe has something to do with it or um you know why 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 do so many engineers maybe not want to have too many people around when the singer's doing their vocals you know like there's a bunch of reasons for that, and uh, all of them, I'm sure, are valid or have some validity. But you know, one of the basic communication phenomenon is that if you if their friends are there, then they have a different face that they need to show their friends. They'll feel pressure, this weird internal conflict. And it wasn't wrong to use the word conflict in that. Um, I think we all need to understand conflict is not necessarily bad. It's just uh, it's just a mismatch of goals. Uh -huh. um, and so. Um, so uh, when if if they're supposed to be doing something that's very uh, personal and emotive, then uh, you know you get the band out of there, then they don't have to they don't feel any pressure to show that particular you know whatever face might not support the lyrics that they're doing or the subject matter of the song, you know that sort of thing. Um, you know, so that there's so many permutations of that. It's it can go on and on. Um, that's just an easy example. Yeah. Well, you know, it in the traditional like big studio, big budget 
setup. You know, a, a lot of times you'd have an engineer and a producer on a session, which of course you still do on a lot of larger sessions. Right, right. And a lot of times that falls under the producer's job of kind of trying to, you know, uh, among other things, feel out the vibe of the musicians and help put them in a state of mind or an emotion that helps project the song well or brings their comfort in the studio. But in in our world, a lot of times as an engineer, we also wear a producer's cap in some way, whether mm -hmm. it's a full-on situation right. like a dedicated producer, usually not. But a lot of times it falls on us to be making those little subtle calls during a session that end up bringing more comfortability and a better performance from people. And right. So it, it, it sounds like a great thing to study, to kind of think about those interpersonal communication issues and just your own ability to read other people and figure out what the right move is. Is this singer benefiting from having the rest of the band in the room and keeping it loose? Mm -hmm. Or do they need to benefit by getting everybody out of here? Right, you know? right. Yeah, it's all on a case-by-case -case, uh, basis. And, um, and even the relationship uh, between an engineer and a producer has this same phenomenon. Exact same. I mean, not the exact same, I guess, but um, but the same rules uh, apply. That the producer has a particular face that they're trying to show, and you, as the engineer, then um, if you're working with a producer, then you have to take off that producer face. You know, right. as much as you might want to. That's that's not what you were hired to do, and um, you know, and so this this is where people can get frustrated about uh, people's opinions in the studio and that sort of thing is that uh, there are many reasons for, um, you know, why people are making their creative decisions. But ultimately, um, it constitutes a face threat for you to say uh, that was or wasn't a good take um, in place of the producer who's supposed to be making these decisions. Um, because uh, on top of um, maybe they don't agree or they're going for something else or they have a trajectory that you're not seeing, you're ultimately undermining their face as the producer. Um, and so, um, so you know, you could see where uh, a producer might really not appreciate that, that uh, you don't really know that your face as the engineer is just as the engineer. You're just facilitating right. the technology and you're not here to opine. And it, it's not a personal thing. It's just, um, you know, but... Yeah, and that's something that I... For myself as an engineer, I run into having to make that call internally on sessions just where it's me and a band, which is, of course, a majority of the right. sessions I work on, and trying to read them to figure out, do they want me to take on that role and to step up and start to go, no, I think you can you know, start to wear a little bit of a producer's hat, or do they not want me to do that, and do they want to control all of that? Right. And sometimes, you know, when you have a dedicated producer, it's obvious they're the producer, right. you know, but sometimes you have to make that call, is there a producer? Am I the producer? Are right. they the producer? Right. You know? right. Well, and these are... Um, are we all the producers sometimes? Right, you know? exactly. And all of these things can happen, and they can all be productive. Um, and uh, and so for me, you know, something that I had mentioned earlier was that I always try to get uh, a real good pre-production going on. Um, and there's, uh, there's communicative reasons for that, too, um, is that uh, you don't... Um, I, I, at least, don't want to be getting into a session where I don't know what my role is. And so that, um, that question, I'm sure it happens uh, for people a lot. And, um, and, you know, but for me, what I'm trying to do is sort that out from the get-go because, um, you know, maybe I am not the best person to do the job because whatever, I don't know how to produce, uh, I don't necessarily know how to produce a, um, 
I don't know how to produce a, a hip hop album that's going to sound like something you hear on the radio. I like uh, producing loops and sample based music. Um, and I and I have my little, little niche there that I'm very happy with, but I wouldn't expect that to work for other people. And so if somebody came to me, you know, asking me, um, can you engineer a hip hop, you know, album? Well, I can probably engineer the album, but can I produce it? You know, I would say I probably can't produce it as well. Mm -hmm. I certainly can't produce it as well as some other people that I know locally who, you know, are really, you know, focus on that. Right. Um, but so, um, you know, there's, uh, I, I, I think I tend to uh, extend um, this uh, expectancy violation theory to um, to uh, is a communication theory about um, what you would expect somebody to say in a given situation. And if they say something else or if they act a different way, then you start to question that sort of stuff. Right. So like where does that questioning lead, you know, when when the client asked me to come engineer a session, but I'm actually the producer, but they didn't tell me that. And we didn't get it worked out in pre-production. If they're asking me to make production decisions and I'm like, well, I'm not really suited for that, you know, where does their mind go after that? You right. know, the, that that's an unknown, but uh, the theory just is useful to say that uh, we know that there are adverse uh, reactions to um, violations of expectancy. So whether, you know, for the most part, the theory talks about that in terms of pure language and body language and that sort of thing. But I think you're going to get very similar results when you have a misunderstanding of any kind. Um, and so I'm always trying to I'm trying to have really in-depth pre-production conversations with people so that we don't wind up with this expectancy violations going on. We know that I am producing it, and I feel capable of that. Um, and then when they ask me my opinion on something, I'll just give it to them instead of um, kind of hedging and I'm kind of hemming and hawing. And that kind of shows somebody, what does that show somebody? You know, I don't. I don't have it together. Right. You, you, you want to have a clear idea of what your role is and be able to do that confidently. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, that all stems from pre-production and that in itself is yet another communication theory that I base that whole thing on because, uh, you know, I can, I can be transparent, stay out of the way, get your session done, and we don't have to talk a whole lot about certain sessions, you know, audition tapings and that sort of thing. I can just kind of stay out of the way and, and, a lot of times, uh, you know, a good classical musician will know what they're looking for. They're going right. to know whether they played it well. Uh, they don't need me per to produce it. They just, I just want to get them good sounds and, and stay out of the way. Um, and so um, when I don't meet with those clients and we show up in the studio, even if I've never met them before, I don't worry about that so much because we know that what we're looking for is uh, going to fit in a pretty small box. You know, we're doing just one little thing here. Um, and so I don't worry about it too much, but, um, but I, I can't imagine, I don't understand a lot of times how musicians wind up going to, um, a studio and working with an engineer who they've never met. I'm like, how do you know that you like this person? Right. You know, how do you know that you can feel comfortable emoting in front of this person and, um, and what they'll think of you or how they're going to react to those sorts of things? Anyway, um, well, I think that that's that's a situation a lot of especially younger, more inexperienced bands find themselves getting into, where they think of the engineer as more of a technician, mm -hmm. um, which of course is true. But you know, everything we're talking about is on top of that, right. and uh, uh, about you know putting together a team for your project of personalities that fit together and and uh, styles that work together and and goals that coincide and all of that. It's like 
you know, trying to add a member to your band. Right. You know? Yep. And they have to be a lot more than good at their instrument to be the right fit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, the, it's it's wonderful to hear so much talk about pre-production, because that's something that we don't see all the time mm-hmm. um, unless we instigate it, right. <laughs> usually. Right, And And about, uh, about, that so, about those sort of discussions before the clock even starts, right. you know? Yep. Um, or before the session starts, I should say. Right. Yeah. Well, that's great stuff to think about. So uh, I'd like to take a listen to a recording that you've done and maybe discuss your approaches or your thoughts on that. Is there something that you brought here? Today? Yeah, yeah. And it, it's uh, it's from a, a forthcoming album by uh, the my group. Um, this is the first group that I've ever really led with um, uh, fairly, you know, somewhat thought out uh, compositions. Um, and um, so uh, this is my group. We're just... Uh, what called the Ents? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, still haven't uh, <laughs> uh-huh. completely settled on a name, but that's um, that's a useful and uh, fitting name, I think. Um, and uh, and I will sell, I will share with you that it was a surprise to me because I was not a Tolkien reader. Um, that uh, Ents were the living trees, and oh. uh, when I found that out, I was like, you know that that that's fine with me. Um, and it wasn't what I intended, but um, <laughs> but it's totally fine with me. It's just a, from my business name, Three Seven Ent. That's my moniker for anything that I do, and I just kind of think of it uh, all, all of my different work like a jazz album, uh, where you'd see um, the title, but you'd be looking for the list of players. Right. Um, and so uh, I, I always give a list of players on my uh, flyers. And um, and if I'm you know ever get like a, a art show of my metal works, it will be three seven and you uh-huh. know presents my metal works um, or that sort of thing. So sometimes they're band shows, sometimes they're um, they're other uh, non music oriented types of works. So um, I do all kinds of things, and and it's I'm happy to have a, a vague moniker to uh, umbrella the whole group. Is there a name of uh, this piece you're about to play us? Here? This track is called Water Spider. Water spider. All right, let's check it out.
All right, we're back. Yeah, that was lovely. That was lovely. So, so that's a work in progress. Uh, uh, still, uh, still waiting. Some saxophone. You were saying? Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. some. There's some lead saxophone stuff that's uh, supposed to happen on there, and um, you know, the the track stands alone without it. I'm happy without it. Yeah. But sounds um, beautiful for, for right now. But um, but yeah, the, this whole record is based around the idea of having um, drums, bass, and piano as a core trio, and then. Um, and then the fourth instrument is a variable, and mm. and and it could be anything from a saxophone or a synth uh, to a whole horn section or uh, any larger ensemble that would want to uh, flesh out that fourth, uh, the lead line. Um, so I, the idea behind the band is kind of um, the expandable band thing, where um, mm-hmm. some days you're gonna. You know, not everyone will be able to make it, and we'll just have the trio, or that's what's going to fit the gig that we're doing. And then, uh, and then other days, um, you know, maybe we'll have a whole percussion section, or, or uh, you know, anything. And all of the music is instrumental, uh, but there's plenty of room for people to add vocalizations or lyrics or or whatever. So, um, so uh, I think it's just for me, it's a it'll be a lot of fun to have a group that is um, different from from day to day right and uh and then you know we can play as many shows as we want and as long as the group keeps uh changing then we're not playing <laughs> the same show every night and uh you know and that sort of thing so it just be like you got to watch the flyers for well who's on this gig right is this the act i saw last time even just last night or is it different today and uh-huh. um so i'm just i'm just really stoked to have that kind of uh setup Nice, nice. So let's talk about the recording a little bit. Uh, uh, I assume that's you on drums. Yep, I'm on. Uh, the... who, who's on bass and piano? Uh, Jacob Wilkins is on bass, and uh, for this track, that actually is me on the piano. Nice. Um, it's uh, it's a very simple piano line, and um, and I just I, I have I have struggled with that uh, particular piano line as to how to write that. Um, into a uh, score. Um, this is one of the things that um, I have to have in this group is that all of the pieces are going to be in a fake book. Um, and that um, and, and what I'm so excited about is that, that it, whether I plan the expandable band or not, if you know how to read music, then you'll be able to step up on stage at one of my shows and be able to play with us. Um, and so, um, you know, the piano part is, is generally going to be covered, not an issue or, or anything, but, um, but, uh, I, I just, I do like the idea of, um, you know, I'm not that much of a composer, but I do like the idea that the music can reside on sheet music and that anybody could play it. Any band that wants to bother to cover one of my tunes could just literally get the sheet music (laughs) and, uh, and play it. But how do you, how do you, I'm not too sure how you write out that it's the same chord, but it builds differently each time. So, um, so it's just been kind of like, I can play that. I'll just do that because I know how I want it to sound. Um, and so that's, uh, yeah, so that's me on the drums up at Western Sound Studios. Um, and I was assisted, uh, by, uh, Garrett Gagno on that date. Um, so, um, so, and man, what a terrific session. I'm really happy with the drum sounds on this. Um, yeah, sounds and, uh, phenomenal. What, uh, so d- did you, uh, record drums and bass together live? Is that how you started or did you just do drums or how did It was how just, you... just me, just uh-huh. me with the loops, um, that Sweet. I had and I, I knew how the songs go. Actually, uh, what's, what's interesting is for me anyway, um, I love editing, um, uh, of all the things that I love about audio, I really, truly love editing stuff together. Um, it's a lot of fun for me to see what we can make happen that wasn't real. 
Um, and so actually a lot of the, uh, there are several drum performances in this album that were not uh, whole songs um, that are either, um, you know, built up from samples from the session or, um, you know, the drums are really heavily edited in a lot of places. And, um, and I hope you never notice, you know, but, yeah. but you can, but I'm not afraid to, you know, let the secret out or whatever. <laughs> um, well, you know, no, not at all. I mean, you know, the only edit you can hear is a bad edit. Right, and, right. Uh, uh, yeah. So beautiful drum sound. Was that recorded in the recital hall or up in the studio? Or That's or up in the studio. Yep. Uh-huh. It's up in the studio after it was renovated. Um, uh, Glenn Brown and Ken Captain's um, renovation, uh, acoustics renovation of the space uh, was a real mm-hmm. um, real home run in that room. And um, and this is a, a perfect example of it, I think. You know, it's, uh, it's room sounds, uh, direct mics, and altiverb. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, I really, again, uh, going back to this idea that, um, uh, we kind of took that to the nth degree on this record and that's why it's taken so long is, um, I have a few too many options in front of me that I haven't made up my mind about yet. And, um, you know, anyone who knows me knows that I've got my hands in about 20 different pies all the time. So it makes sense that, you know, this hasn't been the foreground thing with uh, my masters and everything, but, um, but in any case, um, you know, I, I liked having a good relatively short reverb room sound so that everything um yeah i actually that that drum session was i think we did 22 or 24 mics in the in the room all all kinds of different approaches um there's three or four different kick mics that i have Mm -hmm. access to and two snares and wow uh, four, four different room pairs and and that sort of thing just because i wasn't sure what song what each song was gonna sound like in my head once we got um, to the point of getting the rest of the instruments on it. So I wanted to be able to do a great three mic drum sound for one of these tunes. And I wanted to be able to do a completely different five mic drum sound on some of these. So, uh, you know, the, you're never hearing all 24, um, but, um, but they're there in case they suit something about the song and you know and some of them just didn't even get used yet but um, so, so when you're talking about 24 drum mics you're you're uh, applying a bunch of different techniques and you have different options uh that you're going to pick from mm-hmm. chances are you're probably not going to do a 24 mic drum mix no no although maybe late at night you might there might be something in there that's worth it <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but but yeah no. it's it's to be able to have different characters from tune to tune and be able to uh uh mix and match right and just one session mm. you know one one weekend up in there and and we just you know recorded for six or seven hours a day yeah. and did a bunch of takes to a click and to the the loops that i originally had composed um at those tempos and then you know just i knew how some of the songs would start even if the demo didn't start that way and you know, so those sorts of things, you know, some of them came together very piecemeal. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the other tracks on the album has an ending that uh, I didn't have, but I wrote it out of samples and other things that, um, and, and I'm really happy with it now. You know, mm-hmm. it was like, it really fits what I wanted uh, from that ending. So, um, so I just, I'm really happy with a lot of these choices and I'm really proud of the thing. I just can't wait until it's done and yeah. uh, people can you know hear it so yeah we were uh commenting during that playback brian's got a, a dry erase board set up in the room with a to-do list for the record that uh uh you know varying degrees of almost there to uh not there at all yet right yes yeah very cool was that the uh steinway up at western that we we're hearing on there yep too? yep that's uh-huh. steinway d up there uh the one that's been in there for a lot of years and um and then there is a layer of uh korg triton um mm. And um, 
it's uh, it's not real loud in there, but every so often you can hear it. And when it's not there, it's just not the same. Yeah. You know, it's much it's much thicker and uh, with with the Triton sample in there. So that's underneath there, too. Uh, possibly uh, it's been so long since we did these takes. Um, I don't remember. Tyler Bassett, though, is the main keyboard player in the group. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jacob Wilkins on the bass and I play the drums. Uh, Chris Koash has been doing he's been like the utility guy um he he just does uh, i love working with him because he does whatever i ask him to do and he just he's happy to be in a group where he doesn't have to make up his his mind about how things go so um and uh, boy am i missing that (laughs) but uh (laughs) i get that elsewhere but um but uh yeah wow it's really difficult being in the driver's seat for um you know everything that the band does that's that's real difficult so um so yeah, he kind of he shifts around, plays bass or guitar, or keyboards if I ask him to, or or whatever. So we we try to find a place where he fits in. Uh, Paul Shadig was playing guitar with us on a couple of occasions, and uh, there's a couple live tracks that might come out someday that uh, just showcase his great guitar playing and and uh, reading into these ideas. And because uh, everybody, you know, we have the chart, and then we have the idea behind the song, and everybody's free to explore that at times. So. Um, so in that way, it's not unlike a jam band, you know, mm-hmm. but um, um, so, you know, we're somewhere between a jazz group and electro group and um, and a jam band uh-huh. is what I tend to think of. It. But, it, you know, you might just call that post rock. Right. I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so. Sweet. Well, hey, Brian, I want to thank you so much for your time today and uh, uh, really looking forward to uh, what you discover through through your studies and your program and uh bringing that back into the circle here and yeah i'll be happy to share that and um and thanks for having me on your program ian it's great that you're doing this for more on brian check out 37ent.com you've been listening to electricians and madmen today's interview was recorded at studio 37 in kalamazoo michigan Our featured recording was Water Spider by The Ents. Our theme music was written and performed by Brian Koenigsnecht. For show notes, links, and more episodes, visit electriciansandmadmen.com. I'm Ian Gorman of La Luna Recording and Sound. Thanks for listening.